Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather as your saints once more. We pray for those who are in our midst, who do not know you. We pray that they would turn in repentance and faith even today. Lord, we pray that all of us would have an understanding of the contributions of our brothers and sisters down through the ages in the various different councils in keeping with the pattern that was established in that first council which is in our text in Acts 15 we pray that we would have a right priority upon these things and I pray for grace as I expound upon this to your people I pray for a movement of the Holy Spirit and I pray these things in your son's name amen Well, today, at long last, we were going to consider the substance of the resolution of the First Ecumenical Council. We have worked around the edges up to now because we needed to understand the priors of the parties that were involved. But today, we were poised to get right into the heart of the matter, which is the adjudication itself. Then I started crafting an introduction to the adjudication, one that I've had on my mind from the beginning one that I believe to be very necessary. And then as sometimes happens when you're developing content, the introduction turned into a little bit more than an introduction, and then it turned into a lot more than an introduction, into a comprehensive study unto itself. This may be a little shorter than you're accustomed to, but it is entirely too long for preliminary thoughts. Not that I care about the length of a sermon. I will preach until I'm done. If you've been here for a while, you know that people do reach a saturation point, and so I am mindful of that as well. But these matters, which developed into more material than I expected, pertain to what ecumenical councils subsequent to Acts 15 actually were, what they must never be made out to be, and what are their benefits to the present day. I said very briefly in a previous sermon that the Jerusalem Council in our text establishes what will be and what must be the pattern for councils of this kind moving forward. Similarly to the way that Scripture guides us on how we need to self-govern as local churches, we need to look to Scripture with this too. Now, if the need for an ecumenical council should arise, as it did in Acts 15, then the structure and the process of the council in Acts 15 must be understood and applied. Simply put, we need to know the terms for what is a legitimate ecumenical council 
or else I suppose any group of men may make a claim of authority and then reach consensus on a matter and then make decrees considered to be binding upon Christ's church and we will receive them as such. And if this happens, well, then the Council of Trent, which we'll touch upon today, is going to be considered as legitimate as the Council of Nicaea, which we will examine as well. And if you're familiar with Trent, you know that that would be very, very bad. So for the sake of utmost clarity, right at the top, here is a succinct definition and explanation of what legitimate ecumenical councils are. They are gatherings sanctioned by recognized church leaders, contributed to by church leaders and laity, with the purpose of rejecting false teaching and false practice and affirming biblical doctrine and theology, and their judgments are universally binding. And this is in keeping with Acts 15. Look again to verses 4 through 7. When they, Paul and Barnabas, arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, and then, of course, comes the judgment, which is bifurcated into two portions, that which is theological and that which is practical. But the process there involved laity and leadership alike. And understand that the final determination which resulted from this process was, and this is absolutely critical, already revealed and accepted doctrine derived from the proper exegesis of Scripture and codified into the authoritative position for the church on the matter and matters at hand. And so with that said, now I'm going to give you the process in Acts 15, but I want to break this down into clear steps. Step one, the Judaizers introduced heresy into the church. They started this. And that clear heretical statement occurred in verse 1. It is, unless a man is circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, he cannot be saved. So this leads to step 2. You have a meeting convened of church leaders and laity to debate the matter. Paul and Barnabas are here. James, the brother of our Lord. Peter, obviously. And you have Jewish believers who are very much turned around, formerly of the sect of the Pharisees. And they are speaking up too. They are contributing. They are voicing concerns. This leads to step number three. You have church leaders expounding upon and properly exegeting Scripture because Scripture alone is the authority and not some consensus of a part or of the whole of the council ultimately. James reveals this, and I went over this with you last time, but his authority is very clear as he expounds Amos 9, 11, and 12 to remind you again, verses 13 through 18 in Acts 15. He answered saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. And that, again, was a statement given in support of Peter's clear and dogmatic assertion that verse 11, we, the Jewish converts, believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they, the Gentile converts, also are. All of this then leads to the fourth and final step, fourth and final part of the process, and that is 
that the resulting decree is sent throughout Christendom and is to be accepted as the final word on the matter of what is true doctrine and what is heresy. And this will become the pattern for the church moving forward. Now, for the next several hundred years, we're not going to have truly ecumenical or universal councils from this point. We're going to have more provincial synods. And they will recognize themselves that their adjudications are not binding upon the church universal on earth. Uh, These will deal with important matters, but not the sorts of things that we're dealing with here in Acts 15. Mostly Christian ethics, morality, how that is applied to specific situations. But then after this period, you will have, in 325 A.D., Nicaea which will deal with circumstances that began in about 318 A.D. and culminated in the Council of Nicaea. We're going to spend some time considering this now because I think it will be beneficial in understanding this whole issue. Step number one in the Nicaean conflict was a man named Arius taught that Christ was a created being, that he was homoousia of... uh, similar substance to the Father instead of homoousia, of same substance with the Father. And you can see the distinction there. In one instance, he is God. In the other, he is like God, whatever that might mean. So this leads to step number two. And there is, to quote Luke in Acts 15, great dissension and debate. And both sides, as it was in Acts 15, were expounding Scripture. Some were rightly dividing, others were not, but everybody was arguing on the basis of the sacred text. And the primary basis of Arius' argument was his misapprehension of John 14, 28. You heard me, Jesus speaking, say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Not greater than I as a matter of ontology, as the second person of the eternal trinity, greater in respect to the economic working of God. And of course, he did not get this, and they would later affirm this. He also, though, had a misunderstanding of the term begat or begotten, as in John 3, he took it to mean made. And so... You're very familiar with the Nicene Creed. We have that statement, begotten, not made. That would be a response to this. He said, quote, If the Father begat the Son, he that was begotten at a beginning of existence, and from this it is evident that there was a time when the Son was not. Now the argumentation on the other side I think you're familiar with and probably is a lot like how you would argue if you were arguing the deity of Christ from Scripture. You'd probably go to John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you knew a little bit about the underlying Greek, you might mention that the idea there is that the eternal Son is standing face to face with the Father truly being equal to Him. You might raise John 5, which is uh, where the Lord Jesus says that all that He has and all that He is is possessed and received by the Father, but that He also claims that the reverse is true. And I recall as I expounded those things to you, mentioning that simply as a matter of volume, that cannot be unless the Lord Jesus is God because that which is finite can never receive that which is infinite. They understood it to be a clear 
claim of equality with God, and that is why the Jews responded the way that they did. You might also mention the claims to be Yahweh, and you would, of course, be right to. You would also mention the response of the Jews, again, because they understood, clear as a bell, what he was claiming. And all this, though, leads to step number three. Step number three in the situation with Arius and Nicaea meant him crafting a heretical creed with the idea that this would become universally accepted doctrine and theology. It did not, though, work out the way that he had hoped because it was torn up in his face and thrown on the ground. Because, as Athanasius explained during the council, Jesus that I know as my Redeemer cannot be less than God. And so then Arius and his two remaining heretical buddies were exiled. Um, All of his books were burned. As an aside, book burning is not necessarily a bad thing. We have a rich history of this. If these books are heretical, go for it. At some point in the mix, also, the real Santa Claus may have punched Arius in the face. Not a lot of historical evidence for that, but I choose to believe it because I want to. All of this leads to step number four, though. And you have the original Nicene Creed being drafted and disseminated far and wide. And I'm going to read a portion of this to you now because you may not know this, but you do not read the original Nicene Creed every Lord's Day. I'm going to pick up in a place that you are familiar with, but the original creed will continue into territory that you are unfamiliar with. But we pick up with he, Jesus, suffered, and the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, and we believe in the Holy Ghost. We have something called the Filioque Clause, after that, but that was not added until 381. Then it goes on. But those who say there was a time when he, Christ, was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance or essence, or the Son of God is created, or changeable or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic, not meaning Roman Catholic, but Catholic, little c, meaning universal and apostolic church. So no space was left to question who Christ was. And the refutation as well as the positive affirmation of truth are made explicit. Now Nicaea is called the first of the seven great ecumenical councils, meaning those outside of the apostolic era because obviously the first ecumenical council is in Acts 15. This is one of the reasons I focus on it. I also focus on it with you because you um, read this Every Lord's Day, this one is especially pertinent, therefore, in this congregation. But here is a critical question. Why do we believe that the outcome of the council is true and binding upon Christ's church? As obviously we do believe it, or else we would not be giving it such a uh, primary place in our liturgy. We would not be reciting it every single Sunday. Well, the answer is because we believe that the Bible teaches all that is contained in it. That is the answer. Peter in Acts 15.11 declared in a statement distilled and concise, we, Jewish converts, are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they, Gentile converts, also are. That was a succinct statement on their agreed-upon doctrine from a clear understanding of Scripture, and so it is with us and the Nicene Creed. But while the issue in Acts was salvation directly, the issues in the 4th century were Trinitarian and Christological with salvific implications because, as Athanasius said, if Jesus is not Jesus, then there is no salvation. But well, you and I, 
wholeheartedly accept the Nicene Creed? Can our assurances of any creed owing to any council but the Jerusalem council be absolute in the same way or for the same reasons? The answer is no. Only one council is absolutely authoritative based upon its essential nature, and that is the council of Acts 15. We know that its judgment is true because its judgment is recorded in the sacred text and is sacred text, and James, under inspiration of the Spirit, ascribes its result to the Spirit in verse 28. Now it is evident beyond a just denial that the events of Nicaea and certainly its outcome, which is our present-day creed, were supernaturally ordained by the Holy Spirit. But the reason why this is evident is because the Nicene Creed is undeniably biblical. And we praise the Lord for this, but if this were not the case, we should not and we would not be beholding to it. No non-Acts 15 council is equal to God's word or is capable of producing documents that are equal to God's word. Not Nicaea, not the Westminster Divines, even though as one who holds to the 1689, obviously I hold to 99% of that document and recognize their genius. But nevertheless, you need to understand that if the word of God should be proven false, then our faith is proven false also. It claims that all of it is true. If all of it is not true, then none of it is true. That's sort of the way that that works when you make a universal statement like that. But the same is not true of any council, nor at least by its nature of any judgment of any council. No council is specifically prophesied of and validated in Scripture. Therefore, the determination of their validity is a matter of confirming the accuracy of the judgments that they rendered. We are slaves of the word, And if the same was true of the men in a given council, then we will align with them. And if it is not, then we will not. This is one of the great distinctions between we and the Roman Catholics. They have what is called a dual source view of revelation. They have the church and they have the Bible. And as I've noted many times, practically speaking, there is only one. One rises to the top. And it ends up being, of course, for them, the church. But in theory, at least, they have two sources. We have a single source, and that single source is Scripture. Thus, we say we are Scripture alone, or sola scriptura. And as an aside here, as an application, if you've ever had conversations with your Roman Catholic friends and they make claims about religion that you find bewildering and you think, how did they get that from the Bible? They didn't get that from the Bible. This is how that... uh, came to be believed by them. As for them, extra-biblical creeds and confessions resulting from councils or popes are binding because they have equal authority to Scripture. Again, though, practically speaking, they have greater authority. So you can have the Council of Trent come along almost exactly 1,500 years after the Jerusalem Council and literally render exactly the opposite verdict, and it is accepted. And that opposite verdict is that all those who believe in faith alone, Christ alone, obviously by grace alone, are anathematized. For them, agreed upon counsels are king, and the creeds that they produce are incontrovertible, and anybody who does contradict them is branded a heretic. But a point that I want to make to you now, and I want to park on for a bit, is that there are many Protestants who technically hold the sola scriptura, but who in practice hold their own dual source view. And you will know these 
by their greater readiness to quote from a council or a creed than to quote from Scripture. Knowing the creeds makes you wise. Making them higher than God's word makes you an idolater. There are many in the reform camp that rightly reject the Roman Catholic claim to all the saints and all of church history back to the apostles. The idea that Augustine belonged to them is absurd. Speaking of books you should burn, they should have burned his. But in the grace of God and the providence of God, they did not. Rome, in fact, does not possess that history rightly. They ceded it to Christ's true church when they officially became a church of Satan at Trent. Our family tree as Christians is not a biologically hereditary uh, institution. It is spiritually hereditary. The true sons of Abraham were and are the circumcision of the heart, as the true heirs of the apostles are those who claim faith alone in Christ alone. However, we do err when we, in response to their claims, make more out of saints than we do the Savior, and more out of councils and confessions than we do Christ. And do you know who absolutely agreed with me on this, by the way? The Westminster Divines. That I have had conversations with people regarding who treat as inerrant. And the reason why I'm referencing the Westminster is, again, as I alluded to previously, because it provides so much of the source content for our 1689. But in 33 chapters, they reference 4,000 verses. And here is their very clear statement on the sufficiency of Scripture alone, which addresses this very issue and is reflected in our 1689 as well. Quote, The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. I had a strange and ironic conversation once with a Reformed Baptist on a particular issue, and he appealed to as absolute the authority of the Westminster divines, which I say is ironic because he's a Reformed Baptist, so evidently they weren't inerrant in all respects, were they? So you're picking and choosing. But this gentleman lost the argument. Normally I would be reluctant to say that because it sounds like I'm bragging or something. He lost the argument, though, not because he was lacking in persuasiveness. He lost it because he never argued on the basis of Scripture. Okay, if you believe these things, that's fine. Much more intelligent and spiritual men than I have believed these. But if you're going to hold to these positions, then you need to argue based upon the same foundation than they did. They cannot be your foundation in that way. We must not fall into that error. That's why, practically speaking, we keep creeds and confessions in the background and Scripture in the forefront. If somebody comes to this church, I do not want them coming away, if they're sober-minded and thinking through what they have observed clearly, I don't want them coming away with the you know, primary takeaway of, man, these people really rely upon creeds and confessions. I want them to know that we rely upon the Word. Now, have I succeeded in dampening your enthusiasm for counsels and creeds and confessions? Brother, I hope not. And so that I certainly avoid this, let me give you several reasons why the church needs these resources. First off, I believe the Bible is not enough. 
and its more spiritual-sounding cousin is also not enough, which is no creed but Christ. Okay? The Bible is enough. The Bible is enough. But simply referring to it without explaining your position on it is woefully insufficient. Let me ask you, of all the parties involved in the Jerusalem Council and conflict of Acts 15, which one of them believed in the authority of the Bible? That is, of course, a trick question because all of the parties involved believed in the authority of the Bible. If you would have asked them, they were all arguing from Scripture. The Judaizers, the Jewish Christians, the Antiochian Christians, Paul and Barnabas, Peter and James. Yes, 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 yes. But what does it mean to believe in the Bible? Well, for Peter and James, on the matter of the gospel, on the whole Christian church, it meant then and it still means now we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Now, the Judaizers, to be honest, as a tactical matter, kind of screwed up. In fact, I would say they screwed up royally. They made the mistake of messing around and saying what they clearly believed and doing so without equivocation. And that statement is, again, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And that allowed the church to respond with an equally clear refutation. But Satan has gotten a lot wiser in the intervening 2,000 years. He has learned. And one of the things that he has learned is to never put pen to paper or confess specific antichrist creeds unless you're absolutely forced to. This is one of the lessons of the pre-Reformation state. It was chaos. People believed all kinds of things. There were all kinds of antichrist practices and antichrist doctrines floating around in the ether. Many of these things, though, were not made official. There was much debate, but little was actually definitively determined until Luther came along and preached sola fide, and they were forced to condemn him and his gospel, finally, re finally revealing themselves to be the damnable heretics that they are and the false church that they already were. I just believe the Bible, or I have no creed but Christ, have been used with great success by Satan to fool people for thousands of years. And you must not be fooled by this with them. This is very often what people say when they want to hide their beliefs behind a veil of ambiguity. Peter's determination of salvation by grace was made crystal clear, and it was accepted and adopted by the entire visible church. And the Nicene Creed was signed and accepted by several hundred pastors from across the Roman Empire. And you shouldn't be afraid to do this either, and you shouldn't be afraid to require this sort of commitment from people. Because in our society, a man will put pen to paper when it's time to make a purchase, when it's time to enter into marriage, when it's time to enter into any number of agreements of both great consequence and little. So do not believe him when he says that he will not do so on doctrine because he is just too spiritual. Now, we hold to the 16. 89. While we do not recognize it to be sacred scripture, it does at length define and expound what we believe about scripture, and we want no ambiguity, so we are very happy about that. We recite also the Nicene Creed. While we do not recognize it to be sacred scripture, it does define and expound what we believe that sacred scripture teaches about the nature of God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, and salvation. So definitions are the first reason. But the next reason why we should use creeds and confessions deriving from various councils like the one at Jerusalem is well articulated by a particular Christian author, and he was writing about the Heidelberg Catechism in particular, but he was making a statement 
that spoke well beyond that particular document. He says, though, quote, No doubt the church in the West has many new things to learn. But for the most part, everything we need to learn is what we've already forgotten. The chief theological task now facing the Western church is not to reinvent or to be relevant, but to remember. We must remember the old, old story. We must remember the faith once delivered to the saints. We must remember the truths that spark reformation, revival, and regeneration. And because we want to remember all this, we must also remember, if we are fortunate enough to have ever heard of them in the first place, our creeds, confessions, and catechisms, end quote. To place any statement of man on the same level or on a greater level than Scripture is indeed idolatry. But to deny the spiritual investment that Christ has made in the saints over the last 2,000 years is at best ignorant and at worst deeply arrogant. I was raised in a denomination that missed a lot and added a lot. There were a lot of novel things that had never occurred in the course of uh, church history. It's hard to find new things under the sun, but they did. One of them is called dispensationalism. Um, there were throwbacks, uh, residuals deriving from Finney in our practice. And there were uh, ancient heresies as well. Antinomianism was there too. I would not have fallen prey to these things had I had any foundation in church history because I would have known that the church had already dealt with these things and more importantly, I would have been able to trace their argumentation from Scripture and I would have rejected them likewise. And this is why we were not taught church history. And this is why you are. Though it is not primary and it is never to be the primary basis for your argumentation or the foundation that you rest upon, this is the history of your people. And that leads me to the final reason why you must not discard these documents. This is the history of how Christ's words were fulfilled in Matthew 16, 18, where he promised, I will build my church. There he said it. Church history is how he fulfilled that promise. This is the history of your people. There are only two races that matter. The race of the damned and the race of the believing. Peter's holy race. And this race is not determined by skin color or immutable biological characteristics. It is determined by creed. Christ is Lord being the oldest and the greatest of them all. And we can trace our lineage. Do not cede these things over to the Roman Catholic Church. Their claims are lies like everything else that they teach. This is the history of your people. Athanasius is your father in the faith who stood up in that first non-apostolic council. We go back to the apostles, not through some weird Petrine theory, but because we have followed the truth that they have preached, that truth that has been codified in so many ages. Falsehood has crept up and the church has come together and the Spirit of God has worked in them and through them providentially to preserve the faith that was once delivered so that you are still able to be saved by it. 
do not give this to them. And if you are not a member of this family, if you are not part of this heritage, then let me give you the message by which our people would become your people. It is Christ crucified. He is eternal God. He is consubstantial with the Father, and indeed he must be, or he cannot save you, and he cannot save me, because the wrath of God is full-sized. The Son who was God took it upon himself. Being an infinite being, he was able, and being truly man, he was also able to pay the penalty that is required of mankind. He was him because he had to be. He is our Savior. It is by his blood that we are bound together, not by the blood of any man, not by the history of an apostate church that proved themselves to be so. Through their heretical confessions, we are the true church of Jesus Christ. We exist in many denominations in the present day. But we all know who Jesus is. And we all trust unequivocally in his finished work for us upon the cross. And if you do, then you will be a part of our family. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity again to speak to your people. Lord, I hope that they were edified. I trust that they were, and I pray that they would recognize once more that they are a part of something eternal. That the brotherhood of saints goes beyond, far beyond, the relationships of this life. And I thank you that these saints that I am with in this room, I will be with forever. And I praise you and I thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.